1: Very quickly, I did the math and, and sort of realized that wasn't going to be it um, and it was just quite a, a moment of uh, I guess revelation, you have got to do something else.
0: This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Shum and in this episode, we're speaking with property investor and retired actuary, Liana Pang, whose incredible research and analytical skills have enabled her to build an impressive portfolio holding over 26 properties. Liana explains how she retired from her corporate career early, shares the simple trick to buying property, giving you the tools to do the same. It sounds like great work. So, how does Pan spend her time day-to-day?
1: A typical day will look like, I mean, data plays a big part in my in my day. So, um, I work for example, last night I would have uh, I would have uh, yesterday spent a lot of time on learning about the budget and the implications that I have on the economy and the property market. So, I'll do uh, a fair bit of reading and research in a day, um, and then also uh, I have a research team um, that help me assist, assist me with all of that stuff. So um, I work with them uh, in, a, in a day-to-day basis. And uh, negotiations is also a big part of my day as well, which is something that I really enjoy. Um, so to you know to get fantastic deals for our members. So that will probably be a typical day for me.
0: That's amazing. And there's so much data, especially in this information overload world. How do you how do you pull all this data together and then go okay that's you know where we should be heading like
1: i'm actually extremely grateful for the career that i had as a as a data scientist and actuary uh which is actually our, our whole job and our training is about how to make sense of very a lot of data and very complex data and how to actually understand and find patterns within that data and using that to actually predict the future so a lot of um modeling life uh, modeling is involved and understanding data is a big part of our role so um, that skill set really has helped me enormously uh, when you can apply that to any context and i decided to apply that to property
0: taking a step back we discussed pan's upbringing and childhood experience
1: oh i I was born in china um, and actually in the southern part of china and uh, i was uh, in china until i was about 14 and then i came to australia um, and it's, uh, we, we, I came from a very, very humble beginning. My parents, uh, just to tell you some interesting story, my parents, when they first got married in China, they actually didn't have anywhere to live. And so my grandparents took them in and, and built a, a room on top of my grandparents' really old house. I don't know uh, your background, but it's, it's, it's like a, there was no permit, nothing like that. We just built a, like a makeshift room and uh, my parents thought it was going to be temporary, but uh, I ended up growing up there. I spent probably over 10 years um, there. and. Uh, I had a great childhood. I mean, my parents gave me everything they could, but uh, probably I didn't understand, you know, that was uh, what poverty meant until much later on in, in, in life. But that was uh, that was our beginning. I still remember as a little toddler, I was running, I was playing in that room, uh, running around in that room, and I remember feeling that the building was shaking. Um, so that's just one of my very clear childhood memories, <laughs>
0: Wow. So, you grew up and, and went to school around in, in China as well too. Which which part of China in the south did you say?
1: Fujian province. So, not far from Taiwan actually, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know where that is. Uh, my parents have gone back there. Like my, my mother is originally from Guangzhou. So, um, yeah, that's why I've been back there to visit and have a look and uh, been back to those provinces quite... Yeah, I guess um, it's just history because we like to find out where our background comes from as well too. It's, a lot has obviously changed and there's been, you know, so much growth there as well. Have you been back there since then?
1: Yeah, I've been back a few times um, and uh, I a lot of the, the the city that I grew up in is unrecognizable today. Just it's, it's uh, amazing how much can change in a short sort of space of time in China.
0: Yeah, I can imagine so much as I guess China's moved very, very fast in such a short period of time it's grown exp- exponentially, you know, with that kind of growth. So, growing up at, um, in China and also going to school, tell me a little bit more about your schooling. What was that like?
1: Yes, schooling in China, so like um, like all the parents, they wanted the best for, for the children and um, mine was no exception. So um, from very, very young age, they, uh, my, my mom, for example, really just taught me how, you know, you've got to really apply yourself and study hard. So I got to just remember that I was always studying uh, as a little kid. Um, and uh, I did, uh, re- I was always a good, very good student, very well behaved and good student um, at school. So um, that that's probably one of the uh, biggest thing and I'm extremely grateful for my parents that for, for instilling that sort of discipline uh, in, in myself at a, at a young age.
0: Pam was well equipped with some great habits at a young age which came in handy when she moved to Australia.
1: Yeah, I started high school in China um, and then um, obviously I was, Obviously, halfway through that, I came to Australia and had to study a whole new language. I uh, went to language school for about a year before uh, before uh, enrolling in the mainstream high school. So it was a uh, very interesting and difficult time transitioning. But I, I guess it's the same the same mo- most migrant children will go through.
0: And do you know why why your parents and your whole family migrated to Australia?
1: Yeah. So uh, this goes back to the um, to the like my my. Parents really wanted to create a better financial future um, and provide me with more opportunity. I'm a single child, so provide me with more opportunities in the future. So when I was seven, uh, my parents made the really tough decision to send my dad out to Australia. They had to borrow money from friends and family to send him out and um, they basically had a... Like, my dad worked extremely hard in Australia. It was, uh, we didn't see him for seven years. Like, we didn't literally come back for seven years. Um, and he would be working, like, three jobs just uh, to save up as much as he possibly could and send all the money home. Um, so it was a very difficult time, challenging time for our family. And I always remember, like, you know, one of the things I always remember was uh, my dad would write letters home all the time and uh, so seven long years my father will write letters home all the time like every couple of days we'll get a letter from him and my mom will actually you know read it to herself first but then read it to to the whole family so that was kind of like a ritual for for us for me growing up and uh, i'll often catch my mom every now and then just reading the letters and crying to herself so really it was tough time especially for my parents there was just so much sacrifice i think um, in, in today, I can't imagine like can't, I can't imagine uh, sacrificing so much today. But this is something that I guess my parents' generation go through, um, and so I, I've always been very, very grateful for what they've done for me. And from very early age, I really wanted to um, to make them proud. So you know by studying really hard and, and doing the best I could and also getting onto to a great career and, um, and and not having you know so that they don't have to worry about uh, retirement and and finding way in which you can create uh, financial freedom for my parents and myself. yeah. So I set them up for that retirement. That was a biggest like really big goal and motivation for me uh, for the past 10, 15 years yeah.
0: Yeah, and you've definitely achieved that. You know, it's so great to hear that story. It's amazing like what what has um, you've been able to achieve and also what your parents have also been able to achieve for you. Maybe this would be sort of an ignorant question for me to ask about. Were there phones besides the, the um, mailing? Did you ever get to talk to your father during those seven years?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, if you remember back in the 90s, um, there was no like mobile phones or something like that and so every week like every week or two weeks, my, my dad would actually queue up at the local Telstra phone booth, like just, <laughs> just unimaginable about uh, this day. But the international phone calls used to be so expensive. That's yeah. why he used to write um, and he would allow himself, you know, a few minutes uh, each week and, and, and queue up. Like all the other people that were doing similar things, and just to talk to my family, so it was always a was always a very emotional time. Uh, like it was a special occasion once a week that we get to uh, talk to our dad, to talk to my dad. Yeah,
0: it, it's heartbreaking for me just to hear that. I mean, like <laughs> I couldn't imagine how your mum must have felt for quite a long time, you know, not to have your father there with you side by side, but just to be able to talk. You know, that once a week or twice. Or once every two weeks or so, it's it's quite touching to be able to hear that story as well. So
1: yeah, absolutely. And if you look at my parents today, they are still so in love after what 30, 40 years of thirty, forty years of marriage. It's incredible, and uh, because they've been through so much together, that uh, you know it actually forms an incredibly strong bond.
0: After an inspiring sacrifice. The family eventually reconnected when she and her mum immigrated to Australia.
1: I've always been Sydney, lived in Sydney my whole... Um, ever since I moved to Australia, I've, I've always been in Sydney. So yeah, that's what my, where my dad was uh, and he's, he was working at a factory as well. So yeah, he was a boilermaker.
0: Oh, okay. Well explain to me I'm, probably I probably haven't heard boiler maker for a long long time but maybe some of the audience might not even know what that is but explain to people what kind of what kind of job is that
1: It's like welding so you put um like it's, it's usually big steel works so I think the I can't remember the factory that he used to work for for a very long time um and he was uh like big industrial sort of industrial beings or um uh, industrial sort of yeah, you know, I can't really remember a lot of what he used to do, but that's what what um that's the work that he used to do. Uh, lots of manual labor, like very heavy lifting, you know, lots of that stuff. so it was was tough, it was tough for him.
0: And mom, did she, did she come as well, look after you, take you to school and did she also go to work as well?
1: Yeah, he, he um, she she used to work as well um, and just sort of doing uh, whatever she could get, um, whatever work she could get. Um, and uh, when I when I was 18, 19, they started a little business, um, a convenience store and they were doing, they must have been in that business for more than 10, 15 years uh, just before until they retired
0: being a non-english speaker to begin with pan struggled to find her feet in high school
1: i think the the transitioning the, the the transitioning the cultural shock that was uh, that was the first part of it and but uh, my high school with my uh with my high school i think they did have really good programs for immigrant children so they really took good care of us so i didn't feel as much of the you know like the the make make the transition easier um, and then it was just about, again, I was, uh, I was a really, uh, I really wanted to do really well out of high school. So that academic was my main focus. So I remember going to, uh, weekend schools to, to, you know, to improve my learning. Um, and I took up like four UNMS when I was in year 10, for example, and a whole heap of subjects, year 12 subjects. I did, um. Math Olympiad, Physics Olympia, all that sort of stuff. I got into all of that. <laughs> just trying to do the best I could, and I really uh, got into it. And um, uh, and and you know, I, I was uh, ha- had always been a very keen student, and um, I got a lot of, you know, I felt that it was really rewarding for me as well. You kind of get into the habit of learning, and it just became, um it became a passion, a hobby.
0: Pan took her academic strengths further and enrolled in a university degree. But going from high school to university level wasn't as effortless as she had imagined.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting transition. Uh, I think actuarial science was one of those things where you had to get like 99 or above just to get into that degree. So you came from an environment where you basically the top of your class all the time to an environment where everybody was like really amazing. <laughs> And so you were competing with that. And so that was a bit of a shock um, and that took time to transition. But also because I was very competitive, I wanted to, um, you know, it it just really uh, made me step up um, to. So at at university, I also set myself a goal that I really wanted to uh, get myself started on. Um, you know, save as much as I could as well. So I was also working three part-time jobs um, at, at university, and luckily the university gave me a lot of opportunities. So I was uh, working as a tutor. I was tutoring younger uh, students, or year one students, and so forth. Because I, by that time, I would have done I've done a lot of uni work before coming into uni, especially in the area of maths. Um, so um, that, that worked out really well for me and, uh, you know, I was, I was just saving as hard as I could because I wanted to, you know, uh, set myself up as quickly as possible and set my parents up. And that was another thing my parents taught me is just, you know, like the, the discipline of saving um, and, and that's something, I'm um, again, incredibly grateful for.
0: Coming up after a break, we learn about Pan's transition into the working world.
1: Yeah, it was pretty tough. I remember the time that they they basically only really looked at applicants with certain um, grade point average as well. Um, so, so it was a tough job market.
0: We discussed her motivations to invest around the time of the global financial crisis.
1: And so what I was uh, looking at at the time was um, just... Uh, from historical data, you can see that there are certain uh, patterns in that data and I know, I knew that back in 2008, especially at the onset of GFC, it was a great time to invest.
0: We find out what finally made her overcome her fear of investing.
1: One of my mentors actually said to me, hey Liana, have you noticed that you're always finding, you're always looking for reasons not to buy? You know, have you ever thought about why you're doing that?
0: And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. During her university days, Pan studied a full-time triple degree and managed to work three jobs while doing it. She tells us a little bit about those jobs.
1: One was as a a tutor. So uh, at uni, you could uh, tutor uh, classes. So I was tutoring when I was in year two in uni, for example, I was tutoring year one students um, and so forth. And so um, I was... uh, I did three degrees as well, which really helped. so that meant I can tutor lots of different disciplines. So I was doing I was tutoring uh, statistics, economics and math subjects at uni and that really supported me because it was easier. I could just easily go to one of my lectures and then finish my lecture, go to a tutoring class. Um, so that was one. The other one was actually as an IT support at the University Library. And that really helped as well. So it was just quite a few tutoring jobs for different uh, for different departments. Um, and then also being the IT support. So um, really helped because all my, all my jobs were actually on campus. So make things a lot easier. Otherwise it would be pretty difficult. Um, at one stage, I think in, in year two, I was thinking, I was doing about 60 hour days, uh, 60 hour weeks. Um, and uh, I wouldn't be able to do that. If it wasn't on campus,
0: so I was gonna say, imagining the amount of traveling time you would have had to go from job to job <laughs> that's phenomenal. I mean, it's and, and I'm like, how did you manage to fit in three degrees over your? <laughs> that's amazing.
1: I was just basically a massive nerd.
0: Oh, you've done exceptionally well, though. I mean, how long were you at university for?
1: Uh, four years.
0: Wow, okay, that's that's exceptional. I mean, I, I mostly hear people do double degrees and it takes them five years, you managed to do three degrees in, in four years. So, you're obviously, you know, at that level that um, it just... You're able to absorb these things very quickly and be able to, you know, put them through.
1: Oh, I cram I cram a fair bit of stuffing. But, you know, at uni, you don't have to go to, uh, you know, like a normal degree will give you maybe 12 contact hours or um, that sort of stuff. So, uh, you can actually have to... Uh, you can actually do double, triple degrees and, and that would just mean double, triple the contact hours. But it's not... Um, Yeah, you can still make things work. You just have to make very good use of your time.
0: After years of hard work and coming out of university with plenty of options, Pan settled into a career as an actuary.
1: Um, the actuarial degree was the main thing I did uh, I did finance degree and computer science but that was just really um, it really helped me because you you need all these um, it's are multidiscipline so the whole idea is we are we're trained, in, we're, we're basically statisticians economists and and um, and a whole lot of disciplines roll into one. And we need to have programming skills as well. So the more you know about this, uh, the better it will equip you to, for a career. So I started with QBE. It was my first uh, first job as a graduate. Um, so I went straight into that from from university, straight into that. Um, and then just being on that actuarial career um, ever since.
0: Was that like a graduate program or was that like a full-time graduate uh-
1: it was just a full-time role, yeah.
0: Was it hard to actually go into Actuary after you finished studies? because I guess the job market going back then, so what, 10, 20 years ago was probably...
1: It was pretty tough, yeah. It was pretty tough. I remember the time that they they basically only really looked at applicants with certain uh, grade point average as well. Um, so, so it was a tough job market. Um, I think it is tougher now. Um, just because there's a lot of consolidation of the um, insurance companies, and um, the, there's actually more uh, supply. Like there's more graduates coming out. So, but it was tough even back then. Yeah.
0: Which year was that when you graduated and went into QBU? I
1: think it was 2006 or 2007. I think it was just just a year or so before the GFC. I was lucky I got in before
0: the Chelsea. Because I was just thinking that was, yeah, I, I mean, I graduated probably about a few years before you in computer science and even then, it was a struggle to try and get, you know, IT because, you know, with the tech boom and everything all kind of changing, it just, yeah, really impacted and then I assumed that the market was just, you know, a bit buoyant at that time. That's fascinating. Um, so, you're working at QBE. How long did you stay there for?
1: For a couple of years and then I move on to other insurance companies Um, and it just sort of moved into between insurance companies and banks.
0: Yeah. So overall, how long did your career span within the Actuary and data science area?
1: So about 7 years, 7 to 8 years, between 7 to 8 years, yeah.
0: Moving on to property, Pan shares the story of her first investment.
1: I started investing in property in 2008 actually. Uh, In the middle of the GFC.
0: (laughs) One year into the workforce.
1: Yep. Yeah, about a year. So I was just like, um, as soon as I want to save enough. And at that point in time being an actuary as well, one of the things we actually learn is uh, analyzing all asset classes. Because that's just basically what what we do, our learning. Um, So I I did that as well because I want to explore. Because very quickly, you kind of learn. You can't save your way to financial freedom. If you do the projections, you know, um, superannuations wasn't enough. Um, they did just putting money aside and, and putting it into turn deposit. That wasn't going to be enough. Very quickly, I did the math and, and sort of realized that wasn't going to be it. Um, and it was just quite a, a moment of, uh, I guess, revelation. you got to do something else. And because I was already in the, in the world of assets and investments and stuff, it really made me aware of all the uh, options out there. And I analyzed all the different options. And uh, property was hands down the best by far, like from a numbers perspective. I'll get into that a little bit, a little bit later. But yeah, that, that's basically what I said on. I thought, i got to save <laughs> save for my first deposit. It's really interesting
0: because I think you're the first person to actually point that out like it, you're very logical, you're data-driven and you've actually worked it all out. A lot of people just go, I got to get a property because it's my first home <laughs> or I got to get a property because I need to plan for the future but you're able to analyze and see all the different asset classes you know from shares to businesses and so forth and I guess the power of having that knowledge was that you're driven by the data which you know is obviously what's happening there. So looking at purchasing that first property in 2008, you know, during the GFC, maybe just share us a little bit of background. How did you find this first property? You know, where did you start because it's all new to you, wouldn't
1: it? Yeah, the property uh, was was new with the principles of um, the analytics behind it, the principles for the analytics. Uh, which is a, actually a a pricing uh, or like a, a prediction methodology which I uh, I've developed over the years and and refined and perfected. That was, I guess, that was new to me because it's just about applying the same principles but to a uh, to a different asset class. Um, and so what I was uh, looking at at the time was um, just. Uh, from historical data, you can see that there are certain uh, patterns in that data. And I know, I knew that back in 2008, especially at the onset of GFC, it was a great time to invest. So one of the things you'll find in historical data and not just in just Australia, but overseas as well, is that every economic shock produces a property boom. So, there's a property boom that follows every economic shock. And I kid you not, if you look at our um, historical uh, housing data going back 100 years, happens every single time. It happened right after the Spanish flu in 1918, for example. There, there's a property boom after that. And I didn't, it was like, wow, that was amazing, amazing discovery. And that was the right time to get into the property market. So, I knew that it was the right time. Um, and it was just about doing uh, doing uh, a lot of property research and also just having the guts to make the first step, right? Knowing the numbers, knowing all that theory behind you, um, there's still a whole nother piece of work, which is mindset. <laughs> it's actually pushing yourself to do it. So I've had, um, uh, from day one, I thought to myself, look, I wanted to learn from people that have already done it and could um, uh, already have the results that I wanted to achieve. And, and no offense to to anyone, my you know parents or family or friends, uh, but there was no one in my peer group or family that I could model from. And so um, I actually spend $10,000 of my hard-earned savings and, and pay for a lot of uh, mentoring and coaching, more one-on-one mentoring and coaching rather than just attending courses and stuff because i need someone to sort of knock me over the head or like bend my head against the wall to say hey you need to act not just not just be fearful and act and i remember conversations i had with my mentor after like you know i passed up dozens of properties even though i knew it was the right time to invest but for some reason i always managed to find reasons to not go ahead with one property because it wasn't perfect um and um One of my mentors actually said to me, Hey, Liana, have you noticed that you're always finding, you're always looking for reasons not to buy? You know, have you ever thought about why you're doing that? It's you're asking a million questions, but a lot of them are not relevant. Then they don't tie into your big picture at all. So why is that? And really got me uh, thinking, sort of hit me over the head on the head with it, got me thinking, like, wow, this is just my fear manifesting itself. And it, was, uh, it could be forgiving for for uh, feeling the fear because you just have to turn on the TV at that time in 2008 and it's just all doom and gloom. There was just no good news whatsoever. There were so many so-called foreign experts are coming to our country and saying that we, uh, we're going to face a, a property crash in Australia, you know, 30 40% drop. And even the cab drivers were telling you not to invest. Right. So you could be forgiven for feeling fearful, but um, the, the end of the story is like you know, like Warren Buffett says, of when everyone is fearful, be greedy.
0: So faced with a lot of fear and apprehension, how and when did Pan eventually take the plunge?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, it was just after a lot of passing out opportunities and my mentor really knocking, you know, talking some sense into me. And if I had the opportunity today, I would have gone back and bought as much as I could back in 2008, right? So, um, and I settled on that that property um, and really fundamentally ticked all the boxes. Um, so um, I just took that step to, to, um, to get onto that property journey and never look back.
0: Excellent. And where was that first property that you purchased?
1: Uh, it was in Sydney, um, and so uh, Sydney at that time happened to be uh, one of the cities that was just perfect time in a perfect time uh, to to. That. I'm sitting in Melbourne but because I lived in Sydney uh, and I took advantage of that, yeah. Are
0: you able to just share with us that first property? What was the property? Why that particular property? Can you give us a back down story behind it?
1: It was a property of fit uh, that ticked all the boxes in terms of the the research. Um, massive gentrification going through that area, Uh, lots of demographic change, population growth, demographic change as well. Um, And um, it was actually undergoing a lot of uh, infrastructure. So rejuvenation, which actually combined with gentrification, it was also a very undervalued suburb compared to all the surrounding suburbs. Um, So ticked a lot of boxes. And just so happened, it was at a time when you know some developers were having to liquidate their properties. So it was a brand new property, brand new property just built, um, and the, that particular developer was having some cash flow issues. It was probably not an uncommon problem during the GFC, but it actually opened up the world of opportunities for ne- to negotiate uh, some good discounts. So I got a little bit of a discount on that on that deal as well. Um, so you know everything really added up. Was it the perfect property? No, I didn't like the color of the kitchen. You know, um, you know, I didn't, I, the aspect wasn't perfect, but who cares? That property, I paid 400 grand for that property. It was like a two-bedroom townhouse or something. Um, and today, it's worth over a million dollars.
0: Within her property journey, Penn experienced a few ups and downs along the way. She shares these challenging moments.
1: Yeah, um it's it quite an interesting journey. So I think I, I was very disciplined, I was uh very cautious for the first few years. Um, and then I wanted to try, you know, after after a few years, I wanted to try different strategies as well. So I, I try to explore different paths, you know, renovations, subdivisions and developments. I've so I've actually tried all of that. Um, I've had, um, uh, and what I what I did was like, I guess at one point I got sort of a little bit lazy or a little bit cocky, if you like, thinking, oh, well, I've got successes from my um, my uh, acquisition so far, you know, I should, should be able to just do that in other strategies. You know, what I didn't realise was, one thing I, I, I realised was that when I didn't spend as much time up front doing the research and, and really knowing like, Understanding time in the market, the right location at the right time, um, and just you know, bought something which I thought, well, I can I can renovate it and flip it quickly. Um, I, I got people to you know, I got mentors and coaches in that space as well who's very good at that particular skill, but then not necessarily good at the bigger picture, understanding the research that part of it. Um, so even when you execute that strategy really well, like a renovation. so I've done reno- I did renovations and made no money out of it. I did renovations and lost money. And, and at the end of the day, the biggest lesson there was not buying the right uh, the property at the right time at the right location. And uh, the, another big mistake is actually flipping those properties so not holding on to them for the long term. Thinking, you know, because a lot of people that are going to, you probably have seen this uh, coaching courses. There's so many coaching courses, uh, which I actually went to at the time as well. And I actually followed their advice and say, uh, one of the things they were saying is, it doesn't matter what market you're buying your property in, if you execute these value add strategies like renovations and, and developments, you'll always make money that's not true <laughs> it's not true at all um, it was uh, like just it, it was incredibly stressful because i was working full time as well it was so stressful and 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 forget about 60 hours you're basically working non stop because you were working full time then you got to work on your uh, on your project which will be renovations or or developments or whatever that that may be and there's a lot of risks involved Uh, there as well so you know what if the council doesn't approve what you proposed Um, and there was just so much of that going on and so many uncertainties and risks.
0: So, inspired by Liana Pang's journey, we'll keep the conversation going in a future episode of Property Investory where we'll discuss Pang's drive in helping people achieve their financial freedom through her business's community.
1: That in itself is, is an extremely rewarding experience seeing there's nothing satisfying as seeing your predictions coming true uh, time and time again and really helped your uh, not just Me personally, financially, but now members of the freedom community as well.
0: We dive into our aha moments.
1: And the other one is um, just the strategy that we talked about. Uh, So how do you get properties to pay themselves off? Um, And and that is a huge aha moment for me um, as well.
0: She shares with listeners the tips and tricks which helped her along in her journey.
1: This is, again, a very... A very very important thing from day one. I bought properties that were cash flow positive. So they all um, they were all brand new properties, so which meant that they uh, will maximise your depreciation benefits, your tax return, tax refunds.
0: And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investor.